Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones their hearts and understand that I will love them. I will love them while I still can. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I don't know where you're located, but I'm in Minnesota, and burr, it is a chilly one here. I'm just thrilled that you're able to join us today, and I really hope that you'll share this program with others, because I think you're going to get lots of great information to help remove the fear and increase the comfort of engaging people with dementia. Here at Alzheimer Speaks, um, basically we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And at our core, we believe collaboratively we can win this battle against dementia. I know we're making a difference thanks to all of you, our supporters out there on our multiple platforms, because we were named as the number one influencer on the Internet regarding Alzheimer's by ShareCare and Dr. Oz, and that was really quite the honor. And so you can be an advocate on steroids and join us by just liking us or tweeting the show or sharing it with a friend or a coworker or a family member. These are little conversations that make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. And I know that just because of the feedback I've been getting from you. So I want to thank everybody ahead of time for participating in the show. If you use the chat box, if you call in live, there's lots of opportunities. Now to use the chat box, you have to sign in on your computer with Facebook. Um, otherwise you can always call in live to the show and that number is 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757, and then just push 1. You see, here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we want to raise awareness by giving voice to those not only afflicted with memory loss, but their care partners, families, and professionals, as well as advocates supporting the cause. Together, we can give hope. No longer can we be a world driven by fear. And we can teach people how to live with this disease, not as it. I hope uh, you will also go out and check out our resource website. And that's just www.alzheimerspeaks.com. There you'll have access to our multiple platforms, the, the blog, the resource website, Um, and directory, the radio show, the YouTube channel, um, free tools, and lots more information. Um, So please check that out in your spare time. And again, you you can help share that site with others by using the buttons at the top on that as well. Now, our channel expert, um, who is Rick Phelps, uh, who has memory loss, 
uh, was he was actually diagnosed back in June of 2010. I'm not sure if Rick's going to join us today. Uh, we never know how his day is going. He's he's pretty action packed there. Um, if he is able to call in, I'll definitely pull him into the show. Rick is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group for people living with early memory loss, their care partners, as well as business professionals and advocates. There's no pitching or selling. It's just a true um, online community, building friendships and um, connections around the world. So if you haven't checked it out, just put in, go to Facebook and type in Memory People and ask to ask to join. So let's go ahead and get started with our show today. Uh, we are going to be talking about music therapy, which is deep and dear to my heart. I have seen incredible things happen with my own mother over her 30-year journey. And so today we have expert and music therapist Wendy Kruger with us. And Wendy is a Massachusetts native, and she's been working as a board-certified music therapist for nearly seven years. She graduated from Berkeley College with her bachelor's degree in music therapy in 2006, and she currently works at developing new music therapy programs in northeastern Massachusetts through her business, Upbeat Music Therapy. She also directs a music therapy internship program and supervises undergraduate students who are beginning placements in dementia care settings. Out of the many facilities that she contracts with, Wendy works most with and finds her passion most with clients suffering from Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Studies have found that music is an incredibly powerful tool in the treatment and prevention of dementia-related behaviors and alleviates symptoms of the disease in many ways. So we're going to talk about that today. As the population of people with dementia grows, Wendy is fortunate enough to have found her niche in working with individuals so in need and so often forgotten about. So welcome today, Wendy. How are you doing? Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm doing fine. Well, great. I appreciate you being with us. Wendy has a has a cold, which many people are sick all around the world, and so we're going to see how long she can hang in here with us and <laughs> plug forward. You sound you sound fantastic. So, um, I, I always like to start out, Wendy, by asking you: Have you personally been touched um, with family or friends that have dementia or a dementia-related illness? Yes. Um, when I was growing up, my grandmother um, on my mother's side began showing uh, symptoms of memory loss. Um, I was about 12 when it, it started to be very obvious, and um, for about 15 years, actually, she um, she declined a bit, and it was very difficult for um, for my mother and her sisters, but also all of us grandkids. Um, we spent an awful lot of time with her and my grandfather in um, at their house in Vermont, and um, and it became it became very frustrating um, for my mom and her sisters. Um, and more emotionally uh, difficult for us, the grandkids, um, because she would forget that she had told us things we didn't really understand at the time um, what that meant and why it was happening. Um, And I think that only after I started the music therapy program at Berkeley College of Music and after I was placed in 
um, a practicum in a dementia unit in a nursing home. Um, only then did I really understand what was happening. And after that practical experience, I really, I really got to have the relationship with her that I hadn't been able to have for about 10 years um, through music and through conversation and just being accepting of all of the things that she was going through that none of us really understood before. And I was able to really be um, sort of an ambassador for her um, to the rest of my family because they didn't, they weren't able to really understand what was happening, but I got to be the person to say, you know, here's what's happening. Here is what's going on in her mind, and she can't help any of these things. So we need to just really work on, on being accepting and, um, and having fewer expectations of her. So true, so true. I do have to mention that the the way I got connected to Wendy uh, was with one of my previous guests, uh, Elon Caspi, and he did a show back on, I think it was December 17th, uh, What You Need to Know and Preventative Responses for Behaviors. It was really interesting. And Elon has just a great website with tons of research articles um, that he's done in terms of avoiding these negative reactions that we like to call, you know, call behaviors. And so I want to give him a little shout out and a plug. His website is www.eilon and then caspi c a s p is in paul i dot com. And uh, you can always go to the archive shows too and find it and just go ahead and and click on it, but I really appreciate his his connection uh, for us today. So let's go ahead and start down this path of music and memory. What is it, Wendy, about music and the brain that so profoundly allows somebody with memory loss to access information they may have not thought about in decades? Um, well, the brain... Um it's very interesting, actually. Uh, I am not a neuroscientist, but I do have uh, – we had to go through training in school um, to be able to understand why exactly music therapy works. And particularly um, with people who have cognitive issues, um, music is – it's sort of wired throughout the brain. So while some things um, – some aspects of our lives are just found – um, in one part of the brain, um, or maybe two parts of the brain. Music is actually found on the left and right hemispheres. And melody, um, I think rhythm, actually, rhythm um, is found in five different sections of the brain. And melody and language, which are very similar um, in the way that they're processed, are found in ten um, different sections of the brain. So while a person with Alzheimer's their brain might have deteriorated and maybe part of the brain um, had been affected by the disease, other parts are able to compensate for the loss in that, that one part um, and provide a, a way for the person to, uh, to participate in, in different things, um, particularly music, because the, the other sections of the brain aren't necessarily uh, affected at all. So memory um, is obviously is one of the things that is affected by Alzheimer's, but in, because music, rhythm, and melody are found in so many different areas of the brain, they're not often touched by that. Okay. And how do you go about choosing music for an individual? 
It generally it's about the person's um, preference, but the way that we decide that is actually based on many things. It's based on their age, um, their gender. It can be based on their ethnic background or religious background, um, any past experiences or events, um, and then also just genre preference. Um, say if I meet a male client who I know is 75 years old, I know that person will most likely connect with music from when he was 18 to 25 years old. That's the magic solution. 18 to 25 years old is generally when people remember the most music from. So if this man um, was 75, it would mean that music from the late 40s and 50s is the music that he connects the most to. If his name, for instance, is like Vito, <laughs> um, I can guess that he came from an Italian family, and I can infer from that and he may have listened to singers such as the crooners, Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin, um, or even Lou Monty, who all had very popular songs in the 1950s. Um, I have many, many songs up my sleeve and can give that client a choice between two songs, say a more romantic song, um, like Fly Me to the Moon, which Frank Sinatra sang, and That's Amore, um, which was a Dean Martin tune. And if he chooses That's Amore, I can also deduce that he listened to Dean Martin, um, because that's a Dean Martin song, which gives me some more ideas for songs and conversations. Um, now, as the case may be, if he's not able to choose between two songs, which sometimes is the case, I sing a little bit of each song and see what gets the biggest reaction. Um, or if he starts to sing along with me, I have a good idea about what he prefers. It's, um, it's sometimes a guessing game, because occasionally I'll meet a person and immediately have to come up with a plan without knowing hardly anything about their background, um, and if I can't guess what their ethnic or cultural background is by their first name, which is most of the time, and if I don't know how old they are, um, I guess. I give them a choice between two songs of different genres that multiple generations would know, such as songs from musicals or movies or old folk or country songs, um, like You Are My Sunshine or On Top of Old Smokey, which everybody knows. Um, but basically, giving a person a song choice, if I don't know them, um, is a really good way to find out what music they like. And age is a good a good telltale uh, way to find out what a person likes. But well, the 18, like, 25 years old, that's the, that's the key. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, one of the things that I liked, um, and just in the tone of your voice, I could tell that you're really comfortable with, that this is a trial and error. That it's not a perfect science, and it's kind of like having a conversation. You, you have to test the waters to find out what someone's interest is and not to be afraid. And, you know, you know, try this and try that and look for the reactions if they're not able to communicate and, and come out and, and tell you black and white what it is they like. There's other signs that we need to look for as well. Um, and we'll get into a little bit more of that, I'm sure, as we, as we talk here. Um, let's go into the, kind of the next phase of questions, and that's kind of music and motivation. Um, I find this so interesting. When a person with Alzheimer's participates in a music therapy intervention or activity, and I, I, I just find those two words so contrasting, um, but yet I understand them. So I'm going to have you, um, before I even finish this, talk about the word intervention or activity and, and just define those two things for us. Uh, maybe we should start there before I actually go into the, the question itself for our audience. Oh, sure. Sure. So in music therapy, um, we have a lot of um, industry language that we use. And because music therapy is, um, you know, when it's done by a trained therapist, it is, it's therapy. 
the uh, the word activity sometimes brings up the idea of entertainment or sing along or um, there are a couple of different ways that you can look at the word activity. But um, in music therapy, we like to call the different techniques we use interventions. Um, they are they're goal based, assessment based um, things that we do in sessions in order to reach non musical goals. So an activity is, I mean, it, it is what you or I do when we sit down and um, and read a book or do a crossword puzzle or take a walk. Um, and it is something that anybody can do with music, and it's something that um, that is uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty simple to accomplish. I know that in the show with Elon Cassidy, he talks about how everything can be an activity. You can sit down and and walk down the hall uh, with somebody, or sit down and have a conversation with someone, and everything is an activity. But with an intervention, it is specifically a technique or um, some sort of uh, formula used in order to reach a non-musical goal in therapy session. Okay. And I think so many times we take things for granted um, that we participate in. We know that we like them, but we don't even know that we like them because they're triggering things in us um, to act mm-hmm. differently or feel differently. And you guys <clears throat> understand the the science behind the arts of of that reaction which which I find so interesting. So let me get back to the question um <clears throat> when a person with Alzheimer's, you know, participates in this this therapy, um there's often, you know, noticeable changes in their energy level and engagement during um a session. And does that last typically after the session is over? Yes, um, it's. I mean, depending on certain circumstances surrounding that activity or intervention, um, it does it does last for anywhere up to a few minutes to a few hours. Um, and depending on the, like I said, depending on the circumstances surrounding that, it really can change things in the blink of an eye. I think that anybody who works uh, with someone who has um, who has dementia will understand and will know that really anything can trigger um, a negative response, um, and it's very easy to trigger a positive response. Um, I have a couple of uh, anecdotes about that, if you've got time. Oh yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to hear stories. Sure. So, um, so I'm I have a. A couple of stories. One is about a client. I, I was I was thinking about all the clients that I have and the stories, and for whatever reason, as chance would have it, all of the clients I'm going to mention, the first letter of their name begins with B. So we'll just call them B. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know why that happened, but everybody began with a B. Um, so this woman I, I work with, this is a, a dementia care unit at a nursing home, and we have a very large session. It's 20-something people, um, which can be very difficult to manage, especially because it tends to be a very behavioral unit. Um, So a lot of the people try to get up, they yell, um, they um, just have sometimes very difficult behaviors to manage. But this one person, um, someone gave her, one of my interns gave her some egg shakers in the last session, which are just, they're like maracas without the stick. So they just are an egg that you hold in your hand and you shake it. Um, and she had two of them, and toward the end of the session, she was refusing to give them up, um, which is something that we'll use now in future sessions um, to make sure that you know that, that we don't uh, increase agitation or anything. Um, but toward the end of the session, as the song was still going on, 
I tried to collect these egg shakers from her, and she wouldn't let me, but, I mean, eventually I had to take them out of her hand. But the songs were still going on as my interns were leading the session, and through the next five minutes or so of music, um, even though she became agitated when the egg shakers were taken away from her, um, she was able to recreate that positive um, or, or, you know, the music was able to recreate that positive mood that she was in, and we left the session with her being completely compliant and um, and pleasant and agreeable. Um, and so things, even things as simple as trying to create a transition before the music is over, like collecting instruments sometimes helps because it can be a stressful thing if somebody thinks that that belongs to them, then they might um, they might not have a very pleasant approach when you try to collect the instruments. Um, another another example is there is a woman I work with um, who has early stage dementia, and it's unclear as to whether it's Alzheimer's or another kind of dementia, um, but she responds really well to musical transitions. So from one session to another, she has a lot of questions. Where are we going? What are we going to do? How long is it going to take to get there? And um, if we just continue the music while walking down the hall to the next activity or the next um, thing that she's going to do, even if it's a meal, um, if we sing while we're on our way, she doesn't ask the questions and she doesn't become agitated. And her her uh, pleasant mood that lasted from the session continues throughout that walk and into mealtime where she's already sat down and she's talking to somebody before we leave. So transitions can make a, a big, big difference in how long the the positive mood from the music therapy session lasts. Um, and also, of course, if something happened, for instance, if, she, if that woman sat down at the table and someone tried to drink out of her glass, then she might get agitated and, you know, that, that might affect also how long it lasts. But it does last as long as, as, long as there's not another, uh, another trigger. Okay, okay. I know for my mom it, it, it varies, and I think sometimes, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but it depends on how much um, music um, has affected her, you know, how long she's participated in it, and then even it seems like the type of music, um, if it's more upbeat, um, I find that it seems to last a little bit longer, or maybe it just Maybe it just uh, seems that way to me because uh, she seems to be a little bit more active versus if we're listening to something a little bit more subtle, you know, maybe it still has the same effect, but it's more calming on her on the insides that I can't see quite as much on the outside. I don't know. Um, but I, I, I'm just fascinated with, you know, how it how it takes place. and. The different kinds of music um, that people use in sessions, uh, music therapists or even, um, you know, activity professionals who use sing-alongs and things like that, um, it definitely does make a difference, um, the music that is used. And especially, you know, I, I can tell you if I, if somebody sat me down in a room and um, and we were singing along with songs that were very relaxing, um, if I were feeling anxious or if I were feeling a little more energetic, I might actually, my mood might be exacerbated by the uh, by the relaxing music as opposed to if it was something more upbeat. So I think it depends on where a person is at any given moment and where, um, and, and what kind of music they like and what kind of music 
is being provided. And it changes with minute to minute. And that's where that's where it really does help to have some idea of what a group needs when you walk into it. Um, and I think just speaking to the what you just said about your mother and about calm music versus more upbeat music um, and the differences that that might make or how long she participates in something, um, I think that uh, when when I walk into a room, if the energy is low, I can feel the energy. I can feel I can feel that people are tired or sleepy or or even sleeping. Um, and so I'm not going to go into that room and play some, um, you know, upbeat, fast music because it's not where they're at. They're in a calm state. And so I'm going to try to start with something that's a little more calm and bring the energy level up as I go. That's actually something, um, it's a music therapy technique called the ISO principle. And it's based mm-hmm. on where a person is at that moment that you meet them and bringing them to a different place um, gradually through planned music interventions. Um, and so that can also help sometimes, but it really depends on where a person is. Um, and it does help to, to be able to <laughs> to know where a group or an individual's energy level is at before you um, participate or before you encourage them to participate in music. Well, that's, that's neat. Um, let's talk a little bit um, in terms of the myth of memory loss because there's a, there's a lot of myths. Um, you know, individuals are unable to learn and retain new information. Um, can you give us some examples of of people with dementia who have been able to learn new music or skills um, that that you've run across and and experienced? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, one particular story that I love to tell is um, this happened in an early to mid stage dementia unit. Um, in an uh, assisted living facility. And I do, um, I worked at this assisted living facility actually for uh, just about four years. Um, And for those of you who listened to uh, the conversation with Elon Cassidy, this is actually the same setting that he did his uh, doctoral research in. So um, this one setting, we had a drumming group once a week where basically what we did was we would play hand drums and ethnic drums, um, and I would lead uh, sessions based on drums, and we would sometimes sing. There was one song that that uh, we sang, and that I taught these residents called "Funga Alasia," and it is uh, <laughs> it is apparently a Nigerian folk song. I'm not exactly sure of the origin, but we sang the song at the beginning of every single group. It's a welcoming song, and um, at at some point. Um, they got to learn the song. I, you know, I taught it to them. It's pretty simple. It only has uh, maybe four words to it, but it's a, it was something that they were able to learn. I left that job, actually, and returned a couple of years later to supervise students in that same group, and I hadn't seen most of the people um, in a couple of years. There were still five or six people who were in my, set, in my group when I did work there. Hmm. Excuse me, I needed some water. Um, and... When I came back two years later, I I was a little bit wary about using that song because I wasn't sure how much they would remember. But I figured that regardless, I could teach it to them again if I needed to. But the second I started singing it, they all of the people, all of the people who were in my group two years before that started singing along with me flawlessly, just remembered all of the words, all of the melody, um, and were able to really remember this song after two years of not hearing it. And I know for a fact that the music therapists 
who took my place did not use that song. And also, um, I'm fairly certain that the the activity professionals did not use that song with them either. So they were able, after two years, to remember lyrics and melody to a song that I had that I had taught them. It wasn't a familiar song from their youth or anything, um, and that was really remarkable. I, I was that floored me, and I, I was reminded of why I love my job so much in that moment. Wow, how cool! That just gives me chills um, <laughs> to think of that, or, or just to even. You know, picture myself being in that moment with you um, because we do have these beliefs, um, conscious or unconscious, um, you know, that they can't learn and they can't do. And it and it just had to just feel like a almost like a miracle in terms of that connection and, and just knowing that your work is making a difference out there and being able to tell that example and use it for others um, to help them believe um, in the power of connection is is very 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 cool. Um, have you had um, when you do like interventions or you know your contract work, whatever you want to call them? Um, intervention to me just seems like a I don't know I, I think of it as a, something where someone can stop you know um, and just be told to stop <laughs> type thing versus uh, I understand how you guys are using the word for intervention to to shift, um, you know, the system and so forth there. Um, but do you deal with family members at all um, when you do therapy, or are you typically in, uh, you know, for your business, are you typically in more of a community-type setting? That is a very good question. Um, actually, most of the places I work in are residential facilities. I'm sorry, I'm... Hmm. This cold is drying me out. <laughs> um, the uh, the facilities that I work in are mostly assisted living facilities and nursing homes, and so family members are free to come and visit their loved one whenever they want. Um, so often, I, in my sessions, there will be one or two family members visiting with their loved one. This is this is a regular occurrence. It happens all the time. Um, so I do see a lot of family members, and often um, I will notice that the same family members come back for the next session. They know when it is. <coughs> Sorry, and they choose to come back during the session the next time. <coughs> okay. You go ahead and get some water there. I, I can totally understand that because when I have done – uh, some therapy with my mom once by you know with a professional therapist. Another time, I just had somebody come in who just sang great music and played a guitar, and and we videotaped these different um, sessions. Or another time, I had a friend come in who um, sang because I I can't sing, and um, but I videotaped those, and they're so powerful. And I have a whole bunch of examples on my my YouTube site. So if you go to the www com and just click on YouTube and scroll scroll through, you will find lots of these little clips that are just phenomenal. Um, and for me personally, <clears throat> as a family member, when I'm having a bad day, I go and watch one of those clips. And it, it just fills my heart and it brings me joy and it knows, it lets me know that my mom is still there. Even though she looks like this shell of a body, who who can't interact and can't communicate, she can. 
and she can take in all of this stuff. Um, she just responds differently. But music is so powerful, and it's something that we all have access to. We don't necessarily all have the skills that you know Wendy and other music therapists have, but there's a lot of ways that we can add joy in our own way and then bring it to a new level um, if we are able to you know, hire a music therapist with that. So let's get into... Um, you know, early stages versus mid stages, because you know there's there's such a a, a spectrum um, in terms of dealing with people's abilities and stuff. And so, how do you interact differently between someone who has early to mid stage or mid to late stage uh, disease? Well, for early stage, um, for the folks with early stage Alzheimer's or other kinds of dementia. Um, most of what I experience with them is that they have a diminished um, short-term memory. And that is, that's, fair, that, that's pretty general, but I think that when I meet somebody uh, who has early-stage Alzheimer's or dementia, most of what I'm dealing with is just short-term memory loss. So it's not, there's no real different way that I interact with them, except that if they do ask a question a second time, um, I just answer it <laughs> as mm-hmm. if it was the first time. Um, and sometimes they'll request a song several times in a session because they don't know that they have already suggested it. But if no one else in the session remembers that that, that we already sang that, we'll sing it again. <laughs> and it's it's not that big of a deal. Um, I, the last thing that I would want is for somebody to be embarrassed that they already suggested something. So that's that's the main difference, difference I'm sorry, between – Early, uh, early stage, and then mid, and then late. Um, with mid stage, it's a little bit different because everybody, the, the disease, as you know, and as um, I'm sure most listeners know, um, the disease manifests itself differently in everybody. So there's somebody who might find that speech is more difficult for them in the mid stage, and there might be somebody who finds that memory is more difficult, or there might be somebody who remembers their children's names um, more in the mid-stage than someone else. Um, and so that it, it, I approach that in just whatever the person needs in that moment. The mid-stage is, I think, the hardest because a lot of times, um, especially when going from the middle stages to the later stages, it's difficult to know where a person is declining um, in which facet of their cognitive skills and um, and so I mean it, it honestly just depends on the situation. But musically, what I know is that with middle stage or sorry with early stages, um, I they're often able to suggest songs and sessions. Um, in mid stage, sometimes they have a hard time bringing up a song title. They'll know a song or they'll be able to bring up a singer, but they won't be able to think of a song. And so I will give them. Uh, you know, I'll give them a choice or I'll suggest something. We can have a conversation about that. But with the late stages, um, often people not only need a choice, but sometimes they even need prompting within the choice of the song. Um, there are also differences in what we uh, what we do, the interventions that we use. Um, was that something that you were asking? Yeah, yeah, that would be great, yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of out of breath right now. Um when uh, when we're doing sessions, the things that are the most effective with early stage individuals are drumming 
sessions, group singing, um, songwriting sessions, and movement with music in that order. So those are the most effective ones. I do know that um, that with songwriting, with the higher the higher level of functioning, you can write an entire song, uh, which I've done many times um, with people with earlier stages of dementia, um, and written rewritten an entire already composed song. For instance, changing the words to the song side by side. Um, or changing the words to the song, Case the Rasara, something that everybody knows. Um, but then also writing original music, you know, writing poetry and putting music to it and having people create something. That has really changed my relationship with a lot of different residents because they feel like they're creating something meaningful and, and they're expressing themselves in a group and, and making something that's tangible that they can keep that they can say, oh, I, I worked on this. This is really important to me. Um, and uh, with the drumming sessions, something that I do is uh, we have this type of intervention that's called sculpting. And this is a drum circle word. Um, so people who facilitate drum circles in all different, um, in all different ways use this term. Um, and basically what it is is everyone will be drumming together. And the person who's facilitating will have everyone stop at the same time. And then everyone will join in again, and then they might have somebody take a solo. So I would say to a woman, let's call her Betty. I would say, Betty, when I say stop, you're going to keep playing. And I would stand by her while everybody stops to make sure that she keeps playing and that she knows what she's supposed to do. Um, and the length of time between when I say when I tell her that information and when I actually stop the group is pretty short so that she has a chance to succeed in that intervention. So the the things that we do with the early stage folks are very are, are a lot more challenging in a lot of ways. Um and it can be I'm sorry. It can be uh it can be really meaningful for the people in the group. Um okay. you had mentioned Lori about how it's different for people um, for caregivers, um, you know, you might not have the knowledge or the background that I have, but it is still possible for caregivers to provide that musical experience. Um, and we can talk more about that if you'd like. But um, I, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that was great. I would love to talk more about that because I think, you know, one of the things – and I understand that, you know, yours is a business profession. You've, you've studied long and hard for it. But I think you guys have so much knowledge to be able to share. And the benefits of hiring, you know, a, a true music therapist far outweigh what we can do as, as individuals. But there are a lot of ways that we can just be more conscious of how we utilize music and when we utilize music. So if you have any tips to give families um, I would, you know, greatly um, appreciate that, and I think our audience would as well. Absolutely. So um, I had a couple of items that I wanted to share with you in that vein. Um, and you'll have to excuse me. I had to go get a cough drop, and I am a little bit out of breath from the trip up the stairs. So um, <laughs> I apologize. Um, what I wanted to say about the um, music therapy and caregivers, I think that expectations, and I mentioned this before, expectations are something that I think all of us have of people in our lives. 
And with people, with folks who are suffering with dementia, they're not able you know, they're not able to do the same things that they once were. And so family members, when participating in music, um, I think really have to start over. You know, make sure that you're not expecting something of your family member that they're not going to be able to accomplish. Um, there is, I'll, I'll, I will get to, um, to a more concrete answer in a moment, but I just wanted to share a story. I, I was working at um, well, I work at an assisted living facility that's an independent living and an, an assisted living facility, but it has a dementia care unit. Mm-hmm. And I was working in this unit maybe a month ago. Um, and one of the people in this session has early onset Alzheimer's. She's maybe in her mid-60s, and she's just a sweet woman, but she's very, very uh, advanced in the disease. And her daughter and her husband came to this particular group. Um, and this woman, we'll, uh, we'll call her B because we're calling everybody B, um, she was holding um, some bells. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone had shakers during that session, and she was holding some bells, and her daughter came into the session, and this woman B was not shaking the bells with everybody else. And we just, we, you know, we let them participate at their own level if they're that advanced in the disease process. Um, but her daughter came in and started shaking her hands, shaking B's hands with the bells, sort of violently, like shake, she was saying, shake the bell, shake the bell, Mom. And um, and I think that what what alarmed me was sort of the frantic desperation that mm-hmm. I saw in that moment. And I don't know why that happened. You know, I could ha- I have theories about what was going on. But what was what was really alarming is that this this person, this poor person who was watching her mom decline, was not able to think of this is an enjoyable, you know, objective moment. This was not, you know, my mom is sitting there, she's tapping her foot, she's enjoying the music. What she saw was that she wasn't playing the bells and she wanted her to play the bells. And um, and I think that we, my interns and I talked about that for quite a while afterwards because sometimes music can really benefit family members um, when, when it's in a session or, or even just in your living room. <laughs> um, it can really benefit the relationship because of the lack of expect or or because of the diminished expectations on the person um with Alzheimer's or dementia but there's there has to be a limited uh set of expectations and I think that that is the most important thing to sort of go into this conversation remembering is that with the music you know especially if your family member was a musician um knowing that they're not going to be able to perform or to uh, participate at the same level that they once were is really important to remember. Um, mm-hmm. And that is that is just the first thing that I wanted to say. But okay. um, what what's great about music and with caregivers, mm-hmm. and of course anybody can use music therapeutically. This is not something that is reserved specifically for music therapists. We, we have a lot of background and knowledge in it, but anybody uh-huh. can use music um, with their family member. And what I wanted to just give you with a couple of techniques to use that create conversation and that can really create a connection and a bond between um, a caregiver and a family member or loved one. Um, One of them is just simply singing. If the person has records and CDs of um, music that they listened to when they were, you know, 18 to 25, (laughs) it's that magic number, um, then what you can do is you can you can listen. If you're not a musician yourself, you can listen to these songs, and you can have conversations about 
either the singer or the year that that song came out. Um, and more often than not, people have memories that, that are attached to these songs that they're able to share. Even if they've never shared them with anyone, sometimes memories just come out um, when they're listening to music that they knew um, or that they know, but that they, you know, connected to when they were in their late teens and mid-20s. Um, so even just listening to music and having conversations after each song about the lyrics or about the person who sang it, and it can really, it can be a conversation starter, which I think is something that a lot of people, including myself, uh, who have relatives or loved ones with dementia, um, can be really difficult. It can be really hard to find something to talk about um, because there's this big elephant in the room that a lot of times people have a hard time um, uh, ignoring um, or at least accepting. Sure. Um, so that's yeah. one idea. Another one is something that I do, and this changes depending on uh, how advanced the person is, but if a person has, let's say, mid-stage or even uh, later-stage dementia, um, changing the words, having simple conversations, like if it's a chilly day, I know you're, <laughs> I know the chilly there right now in Minnesota for you. Um, yep. If it was a chilly day and you wanted to talk with your family member about something like, oh, well, what can we do to keep warm today? It's so cold. Um, you can have a conversation and say, what, what can we do to keep warm? And change the words to a song. For instance, um, a lot of times in groups, actually, with, with mid to late stage um, folks, we use the song, She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain. And so we'll say, she'll be, or we'll be keeping nice and warm when it's cold. Instead of she'll be coming around the mountain when it comes when she comes, and we'll change mm -hmm. the words so that if we say, "Oh, what are we going to do to keep warm today on this cold day?" then the person might say, "How about drink some hot chocolate?" And so we'll change the words to, "We'll be drinking hot chocolate when it's cold," and then repeat it a whole bunch of times. You can change the words to these simple songs um, without having to have you know a lot of knowledge about how to write an actual song, but it's just about changing changing lyrics, and that can be something fun to do as well, Some like a fun activity, writing down all of the things um, to do when it's cold. Or I mean, you can change the words to be when it's warm or, you know, at a baseball game or <laughs> whatever um, whatever the activity may be. But it can be really, um, it can be a really fun thing to do. And it may feel, I, you know, something that I've heard from family members before is that it can feel a little bit patronizing mm -hmm. to talk to your family member in such a simple way, in such a concrete way, especially if they were, you know, a, you know, a, a very intelligent person or really conversational um, before they got dementia, um, it can be really hard to sort of backtrack and get to a place where the person is comfortable as opposed to where you expected them to be. Um, I know that, for yeah. instance, I, I work with a lot of people who are who were once doctors or once lawyers, and their family members come and they see them playing a drum, and you can almost see the reaction, the visceral reaction that these family members have of, oh, my God, my dad playing a drum, and he was once this, you know, important doctor, and it's just, you know, it's, it, they're not in the same place that they once were. So having co concrete and simple conversations and activities is just a really wonderful thing for them because it takes away a lot of the a lot of the pressure of having to answer questions and having to really participate in conversation when they don't know what the conversation is about. Yeah, um, Wendy, one of the gifts that I have found with music is um, that it allowed me to play again. It allowed me to see my mom play. And even though she was this organized, you know, 
you know, um, person and in control and, you know, just very different than what she is right now. She has taught me to play. She's taught me to let go. She's taught me to enjoy the moment, um, to really appreciate the simple pleasures. And she's taught me that through her giggle, through her voice, through her her glint in her eyes, um, through her dimple, through her smile, through her her hands clapping to the music or waving to a beat. Just the simple joy of being in the moment and appreciating what's there. And that is such a gift to be able to, um, even though it's difficult for adult children sometimes to go through this phase, it's truly a gift to be able to see your parent play as a child. You know, in that childlike state where it's so innocent and it's so beautiful, uh, it's allowed me to sing when I can't sing and not worry about what anybody thinks anymore because it's not about the tone of my voice. It's about engagement. Um, So there's so many things that, that, you know, this process can give you. There's um, several comments that I want to get to. And now here goes my throat. (laughs) Just a second. Oh, no. Elon was just saying, you know, meaningful activities, and he defined it. And now, of course, I just lost it again. That um, meaningful activities are uh, are meaningful when they reflect a person's interests and lifestyles, and they're enjoyable to the person um, to help that person feel useful and provide a sense of belonging. And that was from the Alzheimer's Association back in. 1998, and I think that that still applies. He goes on to say activities are appropriate um, when they're meaningful for that person and when they respect that person's age, their beliefs, their culture, their values, and their experiences, what you you touched on. And then from, uh, let's see, from Aruba, uh, they've got a question here. How do you go around with a person with AD or other cognitive dysfunctions when they're under um, psychotropic meds. How do you deal with that? Um, I have been lucky enough to be in the presence of a lot of wonderful, wonderful nurses and psychiatrists in the places that I go to. And um, most of, more often than not, I actually am not aware of what's happening with a person's medications. Um, when I worked at the assisted living facility that Elon and I both uh, worked at, um, we uh, we were able to be involved in the team meetings in the morning. And so mm-hmm. we knew if a person was having a behavioral difficulty, we knew that their meds needed to be adjusted. And so the nurses would talk to, um, you know, to a psychiatrist and figure out where the person's medicine can be um, could be adjusted. I have really not had a lot of experience with people who, um, who, you know, what their medicine, I'm sorry, I'm going to start that sentence over. I have not had a lot of experience in dealing with a person who had behaviors that I was aware were caused by the medicine that they were on. And, you know, and so, and I, I have... so I would be... Oh, go ahead. Um, no, I just, so I, I mean... I, I would deal with a person, you know, everyone is on um, different meds on the places mm-hmm. that I work, and so I think just dealing with a person as if they are not on meds um, is, is how I generally go about that. I, I mean, I can't, I, sometimes I don't have any idea what a person's medications are, so I just, I take them as they are. 
Great. I I was going to recommend that, that, you know, music is really powerful. And, I mean, we've all seen people who are drunk or on drugs of, of different sorts. It has nothing to do with dementia, and they still react to music. <laughs> no. Right, and right. So, and so, you know, don't let that stop you um, from getting in the way. Another question from Aruba, um, what about cross-cultural aspects of a person um, with Alzheimer's? How do you cope, for example, with Latin Americans and um, Hindi uh, that have Alzheimer's? What, how would you approach approach those that population? Um, well, I, you know, I've, I've been pretty lucky, and I have worked in um, a few different settings in the Boston area where I have been, um, in, where in my group there have been folks who are from the Dominican Republic um, and Puerto Rico and Honduras. I mean, I, I work with people who are sort of a, a melting pot in general. Like all of the groups I work with, I'll have a Jewish woman and then I'll have somebody who is from um, from Barbados. So I, you know, I work with a lot of culturally diverse groups, especially in the Boston area. And the ways that I that I deal with that, with the dementia and the music, is you just have to learn the person's music. You have to learn everyone's music. And that's something that I don't know, you know, I don't know what it's like in other places, but I do know that in the Boston area, there are, I mean, there's a huge mix of of different kinds of people, different people from all over the world. Um, and so you just have to learn their music. You have to find out where they're from. You have to learn the traditional music from that culture. And what's interesting about it is that even if someone who maybe is um, from Russia and who is Jewish won't know a song from the Caribbean or won't know a Latin folk song, they will still be able to enjoy the music. It's still music. So, you know, while the person who's from um, the Caribbean or from Latin America is able to really respond to the lyrics and the music that's familiar to them, even if it's not familiar to another person, they're still able to benefit from the rhythms that are involved and the melody, um, you know, especially if there's a person facilitating that, that experience who's able to get everybody involved in one way or another. Um, and often the way that that works in groups is we'll sing a verse that's with the, the familiar uh, lyrics um, and then we'll sing a verse that's just on la, 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 so we can get everybody involved in the song in some way. Um, okay. It is challenging. It's, it's certainly challenging, but, you know, being, being, having my job be basically to learn music that people like, I have to learn all the music. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it's so true that music is a universal language, and it's, it's way more than the words. You know, right. the words help us understand um, what the music is about, but a lot of times we, you know, we can sense an emotion that the the music is injecting, um, you know, and giving to us too by the, by the beat, by the tone, by you know all of the, all, you know, everything, and so right. I think that's really important. We've got a couple other comments here. Um, Robert is wondering how do you deal um, with um, someone with AD, let's say in a group where someone's just playing the same tune over and over and over again. Um, how do you how do you work with that so the group doesn't get irritated? Um, what is I'm sorry if the, the person starts wedding a tune they're they're repeating a song over and over again and so you mean yep okay um, all right so well that's actually a really difficult thing to to maneuver and it's something that, that um, you know even now after years of 
figuring out the right things to say, it, it is still difficult. But what I what I will say about um, about that particular question is that it, it depends on what stage the group is. A lot of the groups that I have um, are very diverse in the level of uh, the sorry the advancement of the disease. So I have a few groups that I go to where there's one person who is uh, in sort of the early to mid stages and another person who is very advanced. Um, if the person in the early to mid stages suggests the song more than once, the person in the advanced stage probably, you know, will not be able to um, remember that that song was already suggested. But if a person, if another person in the group says, we already sang that song, um, who's also in the early to mid stages, sometimes they'll say, oh, did we already say that, sing that song? And if everyone is like, yeah, then I can be like, okay, well, why don't we sing it again? Um, you yeah. know, and making it about, like, let's do this one more time, because that would be really w wonderful. And that way the person, you know, who suggested it again gets to have that song that they suggested as if it's the first time without a big hullabaloo. You know, if, if we can sing it again, then that's the way, you know, that's that's sort of the way to approach it. Sometimes I'll say, you know, if the person suggests something, and this happens quite a bit, if the person suggests the song, like, three or four times, um, sometimes I'll go over to the person and I'll be like, we already sang that one, quietly, so that they don't, you know, so that in a group setting it's not an embarrassment. It's not something that they should be ashamed of. It's just like, we already sang that one. But let's sing it again at the end of the session so mm -hmm. that they have, you know, so that it's not ignoring their request. It's just, it's putting it off for the benefit of the other group members who may be a little more frustrated uh, by that. It's a touchy subject and it changes depending on the person it changes depending on the group, and often, you know, when I've worked with a group for, you know, over a year, I know exactly, I know exactly what people's, um, what people's uh, behaviors and what their uh, tendencies are, and so okay. I will try my very hardest to avoid that from even coming up in a session. I'll make sure that it's a more structured session where we're doing a welcoming song, and then I'm giving each person a chance to choose a song, one chance to choose between, you know, two songs so that each person gets a chance to suggest it, um, whatever, you know, whatever their preference is between the two, and then we maybe write a song together, and then we do a drumming exercise, and then we have our goodbye song so that it's more structured so that it prevents any of those comments from happening. Um, okay. But if it's the first time I'm meeting a group, I mean, it, it changes every single time, and I just I just have to pray that it, uh, that it works out in everybody's best interest. Okay, great. You've you've mentioned you know the drumming um, several times, and I'm actually going to have a drummer on in uh, mid February, um, so that'll be kind of an interesting show too. Um, Ayla wanted to know what do you see as some of the impacts of music therapy groups that you lead on um, distressing behaviors, and can you give some the audience some concrete examples of, of how that works in a group setting. I, I'm sorry, can you repeat that question? Sure. He is wondering when you do um, group therapy, you know, um, are you seeing um, distressing behaviors decrease, increase? You know, how does that, how does that impact your group um, in terms of um, alleviating um, distressing behaviors? And can you give us any examples of, Maybe somebody who came into the 
grew up fairly high strung and left, you know, with a big smile and kind of relaxed. Yes. Um I this happens all the time. Um there is a there are many I mean there are so many stories. I I we don't have enough time for me to share them all, but I will share a couple <laughs> of, of anecdotes. Um one of them is actually somebody who Elon also worked with, who I believe was in his uh in his specified study. Um I think he mentioned that in his show with the um, small number of residents he really closely looked at. Um, this person um, has high anxiety. Um, really, I mean, it's it's almost debilitating um, in in or on a regular basis. But this person um, and I had a really close bond, um, and she trusted me, and she was able, even though she would come into groups um, really anxious, her her whole body would be tense. She had furrowed brow, you know, you could, all of the signs of somebody being anxious were just all over this woman. Um, And she really benefited from knowing exactly what was going to happen and being given direct information. Um, So if she was, if she was concerned about something, I would maybe handle it a whole different way than I would handle somebody else being concerned about something because I knew the way that she responded. Um, Aside from that, though, music was really close to her uh, heart. She she sang in the chorus in her younger life. You know, she was um, really involved in music for her whole for her whole life. Um, and when she would come to music, she would often uh, display signs of anxiety. Um, but during the session, given the concrete information, the choices, the directions, all of the very um, you know, uh, concrete things that we were doing in sessions, she was able to sort of calm down. Um, every single time she was able to calm down, even if something strange would happen in the group, she would really benefit from being in the music and having somebody give her directions and having somebody say that the suggestions she was making were wonderful, um, regardless of what she said. Um, I really, really benefited her. And every single time, she would leave a session. She would be much more physically relaxed. I mean, you could see the the her shoulders would drop. Her her forehead would sort of smooth over, um, and she would she would smile an awful lot more than before. And actually, one of my um, practicum students observed her this past semester. The same person, and she was really able uh, to see a huge change between the, the, what happened before a group and what happened after a group. And she was also one of the, uh, one of the people who benefited from being um, sort of transitioned with the music to the next activity. But it really did make a huge difference with her. And um, it makes a huge difference with so many people. There's a woman, um, another uh, person I'll call her M. She, um, she is usually very pleasant with the music. She sees the guitar and she gets all... Uh, animated and very excited, and she smiles and says yay. Um, but this one day, she was sitting by herself, and she had a couple of cookies in her hand and just was sort of staring at her hand, um, just, you know, just very serious and solemn. Um, and she didn't respond the same way to the guitar and to the instrument as she had in the past, but I said, you know what? It's okay. We'll, we'll start the music, and we'll see what happens. And literally, the second we started the music, her feet started tapping, and she started smiling. And she 
smiled and, and eventually participated. We we switched the cookies out for a couple of maracas, um, and she participated throughout the session and was dancing. You know, she got up and danced at one point and was um, making eye contact and sort of conversing non-verbally with people across the circle from her during the entire group, um, which was really wonderful because I, I sort of, you know, I knew that she had that connection with music, but it's hard to tell when a person is so forlorn, when they look so sorrowful before a session. It's hard to tell what will happen, but, I mean, that happens time and time again. It, uh, you know, really does sort of, you know, eliminate whatever anxiety is there or at least lessens it. Um, and I think, uh, you know, what Elon was asking about um, about preventing those those behaviors and preventing those negative um, feelings from happening. Group work when you're cooperating with a group of people and it's effective and you're doing something that uh, that promotes gladness among everybody. It really is difficult to respond to maybe triggers um, in a negative way. Um, and I, I, I mean, I've seen this so much. I could go on all day. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I want to uh, I, I want to try to wrap up here because I told you I'd only keep you an hour, and we're we're a little bit over that. And I know your voice is is tough, but I've got one one last question that I'd like to um, just discuss if you if you have the time and if you think your voice will last here. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, music therapy and caregivers. You know, can music therapy um, you know help family members? And if so, how how have you seen that work for for caregivers? Um, I touched on this just a little bit before um, about how when a family member or caregiver is involved in a music um, a music activity or music therapy session, um, it really it, it enables them to have um, to maintain a relationship with their uh, loved one without there being the pressures of conversation and logistics and travel and bills and, you know, all of the things that exist in our daily lives um, that I think we all talk about uh, frequently with people who are surrounding us. Um, Music sessions, when a caregiver is present, um, not only does it enable them to have that relationship to maintain that connection and that bond with their family member without those added pressures, um, but it also allows them to to play, like as you said before with your mom, to play themselves, to learn how to, you know, to almost to be a kid again, to enjoy the simpler things. And I think that that's a really important thing that people don't often think of, is that when when people um, when people have dementia and, and are participating in music. The way that they participate in music with Alzheimer's disease is much different than they may have participated in it before. Um, Often, you know, especially with the older generation that's right now the older generation, um, a lot of people were very reserved. They didn't, you know, they they had to, they had responsibilities. There was stuff going on that didn't allow them to have a whole lot of time to play and to have fun and to really just enjoy those simple things. And so often what I see in sessions is, you know, these elderly people, um, or not even elderly people, people just with early onset um, who are in their 60s or 70s who really just, you know, had really responsible lives. They led these lives where they they just were loaded with serious responsibilities, and their kids come and participate in the sessions, and their caregivers come and participate in the sessions and see this person in a whole 
new light. And it sort of, I, I think it lightens everybody's relationship a little bit more, um, seeing everybody, you know, in, in just a playful state and a more accepting, uh, open-minded, almost innocent um, state. And I, I think that that alone benefits the caregivers, but also just the enjoyment. And, and like I said before, the the maintained relationship, the connection without the pressure that they're able to experience through music. Yep, definitely. Well, Wendy, I just I'm just thrilled that you took this much time with us today. It was absolutely fabulous. We've got one last comment here from Aruba. I believe that music therapy may not be given um, by untrained people as caregivers since it might bring along some emotional problems. What do you think on music therapy and AD by untrained therapists? And we we kind of touched on that before, but I'll I'll let you just summarize that one, and then we'll go ahead and, and close the show up here. Sure. That's a really good question. And actually, uh, before the show, I was sort of thinking about this. Um, the the difference between music therapy and, and music activities with caregivers um, is the objectivity. It's when music therapists meet a client, you know, we see the person as just who they are. They, they don't, we don't have any preconceived notions. We're able to see them in a very objective light. But as caregivers, you're not able to see your family member in an objective light. You're not able, you, there's too many emotions that happen like that person just said. Um, and so I think the focus, rather than the focus in, you know, in music therapy, the focus in music therapy is it's the use of music as a clinical tool. You know, there's a trained therapist who uses their skills in assessment, in psychology, um, among other things, to formulate these interventions or the, the we'll call them activities for now, <laughs> I guess, mm-hmm. um, that are designed to reach a non-musical goal, which could be to elevate mood, to decrease anxiety, to decrease agitation. But with caregivers, even if he or she happens to be a music therapist, which sometimes happens and, you know, would make, I think would make a lot of the music activities easier to facilitate, the goal is not necessarily to make a non-musical goal happen. It's to create a connection. It's to maintain the bond between a family member and a caregiver, which can be therapeutic, but it's not, it doesn't have the same intention. It doesn't have the same objective qualities that a therapy session would have. And I think just going into it knowing that it's not meant to be anything other than just building a connection, creating a meaningful moment, a meaningful activity with a person who's in your life who you love, um, you know, I, I think that that's, that's the thing to keep in mind um, when you're doing these things. Because music therapy, it's only therapy when there's, you know, an objective therapist there to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's therapeutic in many ways, regardless of who's there. Um, and so it can, be, it can be really cathartic. You can build a whole new relationship. You can find peace if there, were, if there was, you know, resilience and if there was tension in your relationship. Music can allow you to find peace within that. Um, without it being therapy, it just it, it brings it up um, just inherently, just being music. Um, but I think that that's, you know, that's, to the way to go into it is thinking of it of the music between a caregiver and uh and a loved one with dementia as just you know a, a continuation of your relationship in a meaningful way for the person who has the disease and for the caregiver um it just takes away some of the pressures but you're right it's not the same it's, <laughs> it's not the same because of the emotion involved and i think sometimes that's what can make it so special mhm 
Wonderful. Well, Wendy, how do people get a hold of you? Um, my website is upbeatmusictherapy.com, and there are email addresses in some of the tabs on that website, which may be the easiest way. Um, okay. You can Wonderful. also, um, I, I yeah, but I think that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Upbeatmusictherapy.com. Um, okay. Contact us. Okay, great. And we do have that in uh, uh, on the show page. And when I do up uh, the the blog, I will put that there as well. Well, I thank you so much for your time today. It's been just been a really interesting and I, I think informative um, conversation. And uh, hopefully, you've helped remove some fear for people wrapped in this disease and given them some wiggle room to play and really enjoy through music with their loved ones or with those that they care for. So I thank you again so much for, for being with us today. Any last comments you want to um, you want to make to the audience? Nope. I just I think that just when it comes to music, I, I think just be open minded and allow yourself allow yourself to be young again. Okay. Wonderful. Great advice. Thanks so much, Wendy. Have a great day. Thanks so much for having me. Yep. Bye bye. I am going to go ahead and wrap up the show then, and I want you to all uh, know about Dementia Chat. That is a webinar that we do, which is a a free session, and that will be coming up on January 22nd. We have been getting to some incredible feedback, and Dementia Chat is a very informal session where I interview people with dementia They talk honestly about what it's like to live with the disease, and our our experts living with this disease are are phenomenal voices, and we have just gotten um, such great, great feedback on how it's helping family and professionals alike in terms of understanding what this disease is like. So uh, look for that information on the blog. Again, you can go to www. Alzheimer'sSpeaks.com, the resource website that has the feeds to the blog and the radio show, etc. on there. Um, upcoming for the radio show on the 23rd, I'm going to have Sherry Snelling on, and she is the author of Celebrity Caregiver Stories. And so uh, her book is just uh, going to be launched here shortly. So that'll be a really interesting conversation with Sherry. And then uh, Jordan, who is a teenager, is going to come on and talk about her Purple Rain project. And she's just one powerful teen on a mission to make a difference. And so I think you will really find her story uh, very insightful as well. On the 1st of February, we'll have Judy Prescott, the author of CC, on, and we'll have um, somebody from Speed Grieving On. They've got this uh, video that's absolutely fabulous about grieving in the process. On February 8th, we're going to have Barbara Brock on. She'll be talking about the clock test. And um, and then on the 18th, we're going to have uh, we're going to be honored to have Dr. Bill Thomas with us, who um, was with the Eden Alternative and Changing Aging. He's just uh, an icon in the industry. And then we will also have a professional drummer with us. So that really kind of ties into our show today. We'll get a little bit more details on drumming and how how that can impact people. So in the meantime, I want to thank all of our listeners again. 
If you wouldn't mind liking us, tweeting us, uh, emailing the episodes, you can even embed these into your websites if you find that they're helpful, sharing it with family and friends. None of us can do this alone, but it's all about raising voice to get different information, different insights uh, that might help us all deal better with the disease. If you're looking for um, an Alzheimer's Association, you can go to ADI or the Alzheimer's Association, uh, Alzheimer's Disease International. You can find uh, an association pretty much anywhere in the world. And we would love, uh, <clears throat> love to answer any of your questions. If you think you might be interested in being on the show, please reach out to me. I'm always looking for guests. And again, uh, you might be somebody who has dementia. You might be someone who's caring for someone uh, with dementia. Or maybe, just maybe, you have a new technique, product, or tool that you think can help others. Um, we need to get it out to the world, so give me a jingle. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all very soon. Thanks so much, and stay warm. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what can be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.